The reading this morning is from Psalm 32. It's on page 867 in the Church Bibles, the Black Bibles, and on the screen. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose deceit is no, whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Well, keep your Bibles open there. You'll see an outline of where we're going in the leaflet, which will be helpful for you. Um, And just to clarify, 11 a.m. church will run next Sunday, but the encouragement is everyone at 11 who wants to be in the pageant, of course, come to 9 a.m. There. All right. Well, it's said uh, that there are no atheists in foxholes. And today, as we mark 100 years since the end of the First World War in which millions lost their lives more than in any previous conflict. It's right that our thoughts go to the gospel, to the answer that God gives to everyone who looks death in the face. This week is our second in a series on the Protestant Reformation, which was that movement which marked the rediscovery of the gospel, captured in five catch cries that shook the world And if you could say it with me, that salvation is found in Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone, in scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Last week we looked at Christ alone, today we come to faith alone. John Calvin said that justification by faith alone was the hinge on which religion turns. Martin Luther said that this slogan was the article by which the church stands or falls. It was his conviction that this article is the head and cornerstone of the church, which alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves and protects the church, without which the church of God cannot subsist one hour. There you go. Well, why not? Because there is no more important question than each of us must ask than, am I right with God? The story begins in 1505 when a young Martin Luther gives up his plans to study law to his father's disgust 
He enters a monastery to save his soul. Why? Well, he'd been out riding his horse and he'd been caught in a lightning storm which was so terrifying that he had called out to St. Catherine vowing that if he, if he was saved, he would become a monk. Well, he didn't die and so he became a monk because his brush with death had scared him. He was not right with God and he knew it. For him, the burning question became, how could he, a sinner, be right with God? His monastic order told him that he needed to satisfy God's demands for righteousness by doing good works. And Luther did them zealously. He labored long in prayer. He did his penance. He repeated his confessions. He wore out his confessor. Later on, he looked back and he wrote, I followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk did obta- could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should have been entitled to it. If, I had con- if it had continued much longer, I should have carried out my mortification even to death by means of watchings, prayers, readings and other labours. He wasn't exaggerating. Apparently Luther fasted so much that he began to smell as his organs began shutting down. All this brought him no peace because Luther knew that even the best of his works was still in some sense polluted or tainted by sin. He, he wrote, How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted in their very source? It's a very good question, isn't it? You know, sinners cannot naturally stand in the presence of a holy God and live. God is a just judge. All sin will be judged with justice. He will punish sinners. And what's more, nothing can be hidden from him. He knows, he knows us. He knows our thoughts. He knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows that, well, Jesus said, out of the depths comes evil thoughts and sexual immorality and desires for theft and murder and greed and malice and deceit and envy and slander and arrogance and folly. Jesus said that. By ourselves, we cannot claim righteousness. Even our best efforts still have, in some sense, some mark of selfishness and sin. So what hope do we have? How can anyone be right with God? There was no more important question for Luther, and there is no more important question for you or for me. And Luther felt it. Have you felt it? I wonder. You need to feel it. What's ironic in all of this is that Luther was an Augustinian monk and the question plaguing Luther had already been grappled with by Augustine 1,200 years earlier in the 4th century from the Psalms, from the Psalm we've just heard read, Psalm 32, written by David. There's Augustine. So wonderful was what he found in the Psalms He had verses 1 and 2 of this psalm inscribed on his bedroom wall as he lay dying so that those words were the last words he could meditate on in the last moments of his life so that they could comfort his soul. They meant that much to him. Psalm 31 verses 1 and 2 is David's answer to Luther's question of how can a sinner be right with God. And here is the answer. Blessed is that man or woman whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit 
is no deceit. This is good news. The truly blessed person is the one whose sins are not counted against them. That is good news. There is no better news than that good news. Uh, This is personal. It's permanent. And it's eternal. How does it come? David, who wrote the psalm, said it comes to us through faith and faith alone. Psalm 32, verse 10. The Lord's unfailing love surrounds that person who leads a moral life? No. Who is religious enough? No. The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Trust. That's what's needed. Faith. Faith in God. Faith alone in God. Because if you were to flick to Romans 4, please do that. Someone, if you've got a Bible there. Uh, If you haven't, you could stick up a hand and some helpful person will run around and get you one. (laughs) There's Phil. He's going to be the helpful person. Anyone need a Bible? Okay. If you flick to Romans 4, you'll see that Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 are quoted there early on in, in Romans 4 to make the point that it is not religious works which make us right with God. It is faith alone. These verses contain good news. And in them we see three diagnoses and three solutions. The three diagnoses come in three different words for sin. The first is the word transgressions, meaning our transgressions or our breaking, our violating of God's laws. Okay, This is crossing the line. We all uh, transgress. We all break the law. We all cross the line. We've all done what God has said um, we shouldn't do in his word uh, and we've offended him in our conscience in this way as well. So if God's law is a line on the ground, we not only have all walked up to the line, we have actively stepped over it and we've done it defiantly. We've crossed the line, we've declared ourselves rebels against God's word. That's the diagnosis. We are transgressors of God's law. The second word for sin is is translated as sins, in the second half of verse 1, and that means falling short of the mark, like an arrow which repeatedly falls short of its target. We in our lives repeatedly fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The final diagnosis is in the word translated as sin in verse 2, which means depravity. That's our fallenness. That is what the great thinker Augustine understood. Augustine himself had been converted from living a very immoral life, but he became bishop, and as bishop, he he used his very deep grasp of the gospel and his rather formidable intellect to defend the gospel against the idea that was circulating at that time that human beings are fundamentally good and capable, with Christ's help, of saving ourselves. That idea is still immensely popular And maybe that's something that you found yourself believing. Augustine thought it was hopelessly optimistic. Because, verse 2 of our depravity, referring to the fact that there is no part of us which is not somehow tainted or infected by sin. Every part of us is fallen. Meaning that even the best of our works, our best thoughts, are still in some sense polluted. When Augustine saw the truth in um, Psalm 32, he was changed. First of all, it was 
True, he thought, we are transgressors of God's law, but good news. We all have fallen short of God's glory, but good news. We all are depraved, rotten, but good news. Because although each diagnosis is true, each has a solution which becomes ours through faith. That where there are transgressions, they can be forgiven. Here is the image of someone who has been carrying a burden, like a pilgrim from a pilgrim's progress, if you're familiar with that old work by John Bunyan. Um, And this pilgrim has his load removed. The weight and the burden of our transgressions lifted off us as our transgressions are forgiven. It's a wonderful thing to be forgiven. And you may remember a moment in your life where this happened in a personal interaction, where someone forgave you and there were tears and you walked lighter with an extra you know, skip in your step. You weren't crushed anymore. It's a wonderful thing to have forgiveness for things we, sh- we shouldn't have done, but is that enough? What about our sins of omission, the things we didn't do that we should have done? What of our falling short of God's standard, our falling short of his glory? The psalm says, blessed is the person whose sins are covered. And the imagery here comes from the Day of Atonement in Jewish religion when the high priest would go into the very heart of the tabernacle, the tent, um, where God would dwell into the very, very presence of God who dwelt between the cherubim's wings, which covered the Ark of the Covenant, which was that gold-plated box inside of which were the Ten Commandments, right? And the cherubim above were looking down and seeing the commandments of God and therefore seeing how far the people had fallen short of obeying them fully And all would be lost except between the cherubim looking down and the commandments below was the covering. And that was called the mercy seat, the lid of the ark. And it was called the mercy seat because once a year the high priest would draw near and sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial animal on the cover of the ark. And that would cover the sinner for falling short of God's glory. Blessed is the person whose falling short is completely covered. And we might think that was all that was needed, except for what for the unmistakable, is the unmistakable fact that even without our sins, we're just not worthy of being with God in his presence because there's something not right at our very heart. There's something corrupt in each of us. David says, blessed is the person whose innate human depravity the Lord does not count against them. Um, The imagery here is that of bookkeeping. Everything on our debit side, not good enough, not pure enough, not righteous enough, not holy enough. Blessed is the person whose debit column is not counted against them. Three diagnoses of sin, three solutions describing the blessed person who is declared right with God through faith alone. Transgressions, forgiven. Sins, covered. Depravity, not counted against them. Well, it sounds wonderful, but how on earth can it happen? Well, here's how it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen through keeping silent. It doesn't happen through pretending things are okay between us and God when they're not. David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He knew he was pretending. 
the pain of living with unconfessed sin. God, in his mercy, brings pressure to bear and accentuates our pain so that we will come clean. That's what he wants. That's what we need. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You see, though we may want to ignore our sin and pretend things are okay, God cannot pretend. He wants us to come clean. And he'll often bring acute pressure to bear against us so that we will turn back to him. And so if you're sitting here maybe uncomfortably with unconfessed sin in your life, you'll need to do what David did in verse 5. Come clean. That's what faith is all about. Verse 5, acknowledging our sin, not covering up our iniquity, telling ourselves, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And immediately have a look at what happens. I'll I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. God is not like us. You may recall a time when someone has come to you asking for forgiveness and, and then there is that temptation at that moment, isn't it? Because now they're vulnerable and you have power over them because you could choose to withhold forgiveness or at least delay granting it. You can make them squirm. God is not like us in that way. He forgives straight away those who come clean with him, those who have faith in him. Because coming clean with God is to put our faith in him. We don't pretend anymore. We're honest before God. We we know we can't stand on our own righteousness. Instead, we throw ourselves on his mercy, believing that forgiveness, covering, wiping our debt clean can only come through him. David knew this to be true. It was true for him. And so he speaks to us in verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly Pray to you, Lord, while you may be found. Because we can find God now, but we won't always be able to. How do we know whether or not we'll die tomorrow? How do we know whether Jesus won't return tomorrow? We don't. But we know about today. The person of faith comes clean with God, and for them, all the blessings of verses 1 and 2 are true. David believed it. Paul believed it, Romans 4, who quoted David. Augustine believed it, who wrote these verses on his wall before he died. Martin Luther, well, he came to believe it, but only after a long struggle. Luther's great question was, how can a just God justify the ungodly? How could a God who was just and righteous decide not to count his sins against him when both God and Luther knew that Sins rightly deserved punishment. To Luther, the only way that God could rightly declare someone righteous was if they were righteous, which is why he tried so hard. But the harder he tried, of course, the more frustrated he became because nothing he did was completely pure. So where where does the breakthrough come? Luther knew that Augustine found comfort in God's decision not to count someone's sins against them. Psalm 32 verse 2. But how how could God do that and be just? How could God forgive and not punish when his justice demanded also that sins be punished? Well, the answer is in verse 1. Blessed is that person whose sins are covered. The mercy seat. Or to be technical, the seat of propitiation. The place where 
punishment for sin was dealt with, where God's anger was propitiated. That's a word we don't use very much. That means turned aside. God's anger was turned aside, away from the sinner. That is what Augustine knew from Psalm 32, but what Luther couldn't grasp until he prepared his lectures on the book of Romans. Keep your thumb in Psalm 32. Well, if you're in Romans 4 still, (laughs) have a look there. Actually, Romans 3. Right up until chapter 3, verse 20, Luther knew that Paul had been building his case. Jews and Gentiles were all alike under sin. Both groups have rejected God and turned from him, meaning, chapter 3, verse 9, there is no one righteous, not even one. It's no good trying to become right with God through our own effort because, verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our depravity, our sin. Humanly speaking, the situation is hopeless. But then comes the but of verse 21. Here is the hinge on which religion turns. But now, a righteousness from God, not from us, but from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a propitiatory sacrifice through faith in his blood. Now just working backwards, three points are being made. Verse 25, the basis for our justification, for our being declared right with God, is the death of Christ, where Jesus' sacrifice propitiated God, turned aside God's anger. It's his blood which covers us, the blood on the mercy seat between God and us. Secondly, verse 22, the means by which we become justified is faith, not works. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We are justified freely, meaning we haven't earned our right standing before God by anything we've done. Verse 25, it comes through faith in Christ's blood. And thirdly, finally, verse 21, the source of our righteousness is not ourselves, it's God. This righteousness comes to us from God, not from us. And now we see what Luther didn't see. Luther was thinking on two verses in Romans 1 where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now Luther, when he was translating this from the original Greek text, He couldn't understand it. When he read the righteousness of God, all he heard was God's impossibly high standards that he himself could never attain. He heard of God's righteous desire to punish sinners. He hated the righteousness of God. How could the righteousness of God be God's power for salvation? He wrote, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, 
Namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives. And it's a gift of God. And it's received by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness which the merciful God justifies us by faith. By that he means Jesus' righteousness which becomes ours. He said, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Now that was a discovery that changed the world. And it was Luther's testimony that John Wesley later on read and was also converted. And through him, the conversion of thousands and thousands of people and the whole rise of the Methodist movement, which historically is the forerunner to the Pentecostal movement, right? Luther's rediscovery of justification through faith alone was a discovery that shook the world. Here was how guilty sinners could stand righteous before God, not having a righteousness of their own that comes through the law or through their own efforts, but a righteousness that comes from God, outside of us. It comes to us from God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how it's received. Well, what's our reaction? You know, it's possible to hear this and run off and away and forget what's been said, like a horse, or to sit down and do nothing, like a stubborn mule. God knows this, that's why, back in Psalm 32, he warns us. He says, be not like horse or mule, which have no sense. Don't run off and forget Don't sit down and do nothing. No, what we must do is not nothing. We must not either run off and forget. We must move in the direction of faith. First of all, we need to be clear on the gospel. Salvation is in Christ alone, by faith alone. This righteousness comes to us from God, not from us. And we need to be clear because, as we heard last week, if we're not clear, we're fuzzy. (laughs) Luther said... This article alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves and protects the church. He knew we can't afford to be fuzzy on the gospel. And yet many Christians, many Protestants and many, many Roman Catholics are confused on this because it's so natural to think it's all about us and what I must do. It's actually never about us. And what we must do, because we can't do enough. Jesus has done everything for us. Secondly, we need to draw near in faith and trust in Christ. Luther said, you will never find true peace until you find it and keep it in this, that Christ takes all your sins upon himself and bestows all his righteousness upon you. Psalm 32 verse 10. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds that person who trusts in him. All of us need to draw near to God in faith and to come clean. And finally, we need God to burn this into our hearts that we would treasure this as precious because it tells us how fallen, guilty sinners can stand right with God and to treasure this as something glorious because it gives all the glory to him as it should be.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the truth that's embedded in Scripture that you write very clearly, but which Luther rediscovered. And through the Scriptures and through the legacy of people like Martin Luther and what you showed him, it's come to us. And it's so counter our grain because we always think that it's always about us and our eyes are taken off Jesus. May our eyes not be taken off Jesus. May they be on him and on him alone. And may we trust in him alone, not ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.